Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome everyone, I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where I get to talk to editors and reporters about the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is James Kleiman, the managing editor of our newsrooms, and we'll be discussing the biggest stories we covered this week across all of our brands. Before we dive in, here's a word from our sponsor. Now more than ever, it's important you partner with a subservicer who is compliant. At TMS, they operate under a culture of compliance, one that follows all investor and regulatory guidelines 24-7-365. They not only put the customer first, they do what is right. It's a way of doing business that has earned special praise from Fannie Mae, Jenny Mae, and many state regulators. Partner with a subservicer who makes compliance a priority. Go to subservicing.themoneysource.com. James, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be here with you. You know, I was off for a week, so I was I was reading the stories that we publish as a reader first, not an editor. And um, so it's really fun to do this wrap up of like, hey, here's what happened this week, uh, especially from my perspective. So one of the biggest stories over the last week is obviously mortgage rates. Freddie Mac's PMMS survey yesterday showed the average 30-year fixed at 3.92%, uh, but others had it even higher. You know, what do we expect to see there? Yeah, so about a week ago, we started to, to hear that mortgage rates were really creeping very high north. You know, they, they've gained about 50 basis points in about a month. And so depending on the index you're looking at, um, you're looking at north of 4%. Um, now, the Freddie Mac PMMS, you know, they... they that's an average, right? And that assumes that everybody has great credit and it, it assumes that there are points that are bought. And so so that doesn't tell the entire story. I think it's a really good metric uh, for the overall housing market. But if you look at other um, Optimal Blue, uh, over 4%, and um, and that's going to continue. And so looking at it right now and, uh, you know, the, the average mortgage rates are looking at around 4.2%, depending on where you are. And um Unless there's a war in Ukraine and Russia, or or somebody figures out the supply chain, or you know there, there's some major economic shift, I, I think this is probably a trend line that's going to continue. And so the real question is, how high will they go, and and how long will they go for? You know, I, I remember, and, and you probably remember as well, when you know the GSEs come out with their forecasts for 2022, and um, my recollection is that they were looking at 4% by the end of the year. It's only February. We're already at 4% and we're going to go north. So, um, you know, a lot a lot can happen in the next nine or so months. So it's it's really hard to say where things will end. But um, I, I think most people expect that the days of two and three are are very far back in the rear view mirror. Well, and you know, we know that that means, you know, the, the refi market is pretty much done unless there are some people who are like trying to get it in. Maybe they, they had a really high rate before things go even higher, but there are, you know, so, so this really poses a challenge to originators who are like margin compression. Now, you know, purchase loans take more time. Uh, they cost more. So, you know, what are we seeing? You know, what are some of the things people are doing to, to counteract that? 
So the big thing, the obvious thing, right, is that this is an industry that that changes with the cycles, and and no industry is probably more um, in line with with the hell of the moon, uh, you know, in terms of mortgage rates and, and treasury rates as as housing, and so. You know, this is an industry that built up the capacity to originate about four trillion dollars in 2020, 2021, and that four trillion dollars is very unlikely uh, to to be there for the taking in 2022 and and in the next few years. And so, the reality is there are going to be cuts, and we've already seen cuts. We've seen big layoffs at at major lenders. We've heard regional and small lenders are are cutting to the bone in some cases just to, to keep, you know, keep costs to a minimum where they can. And uh, I, I think you're going to continue to see more consolidation and more companies making a calculation as to, should we be in this channel? Is this something that that is good for our business? Is this where we want to deploy our precious resources uh, when the margins are shrinking and when our cash position is is weakening by the day? And so the, the big example, I think, over the last few weeks, Guaranteed Rate decided, you know what, we had a little fun in the wholesale channel with our Stearns pickup, and, and we're just not going to do that any longer. And then earlier this week, uh, news came out that HomePoint, which is pretty much a pure play wholesaler, and, um, and, and a big part of their strategy has long been they're going to they're gonna manage the entire operation, right? They're going to have MSRs, they're, they're going to be keeping everything, and and. It was probably back in November that they decided to sell off, you know, their their Ginny May servicing business. They weren't going to 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 work in that space, and now their entire MSR portfolio is going to be subserviced by um, an entity controlled by First American, and so they're basically getting out of the business, and that's going to free up their cash so that they can focus on originations and try to get their their costs to originate. A little bit slimmer, and uh, you know, wholesale is a, a tough market to operate in right now, and and um, they can't they can't make a loan as as cheaply as UWM, and so you're going to see a lot of these decisions for a lot of different types of originator originators. Um, I, I think in the next few months, we know that there are, you know a couple of uh, types of products that are that are less rate sensitive, right? So you've got cash out refis. Okay. Got HELOCs. Do I guess we expect a lot of that to to heat up if possible? I think so. Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more interest in non QM. You know, there are some some out there that are expecting to to quadruple in the next few years. You know, origination volume. Uh, there are still a lot of people who who do need um, you know housing finance, but probably don't fit very well into kind of a standard conventional mortgage. Uh, or, or other products, right? If you want to do a rental loan or you want to do something like that, it's it's a construction loan, hard money loan, HELOC. Uh, I, I think these are all probably going to be uh, big products. And, and the reason is simple. There are simply way too many equity-rich homeowners out there who, you know, they're, they're not going to do a rate term refi at this point, right? Like, if there are any, like, please, like... <laughs> find them for me. I want to interview them. I want to ask them, like, what were you thinking in 2020, 2021? Like now, you know, when rates are back in the fours, you're like, I'm going to refund now. But anyway, back back to the main point here, which is, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think people are working increasingly from home. That is a trend that is probably going to stabilize, you know, even as the economy has opened up and more people are willing to go shopping and go to restaurants and bars and, you know, be a part of society again, that doesn't mean that they're going to the office. And there's been a lot of hesitancy on the part of employers to say, okay, guys, it's June, like, 
get back here. We, we want to see your butts in the seats again. Um, there are just too many people who are going to be in their home. And, and, you know, depending on where you are, if you've been a homeowner for a few years, you've probably made a hundred thousand more in some places in equity in just the last few years, you know? And so you could probably do a cash out refi, get that money reinvested into your home, maybe pay off other debts. If you, you know, haven't already paid your credit cards down or student loans, right. Or, or whatever, you know, big ticket expenses, you know, people are going to be tapping equity, I think pretty heavily. And what's interesting is it's not like the HELOC market has exploded, you know, in, in the last few weeks either to, to cash in on this demand. So I, I think people, people who were, you know, maybe previously would have just gone to their standard bank, you know, their Chase, their Wells, whatever, they're going to look for different options because the, those products don't really work, uh, you know, for them anymore. They're, they're just not available. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a fun time for for certain products. But but yeah, definitely the standard rate term refi is uh, see you later. Maybe we'll see you again in 2026. Who knows? Well, and all of this is happening against a background of, um, you know, new lows in housing inventory. So we're coming into the spring buying season, which normally, you know, realtors and mortgage lenders could could feel good about. But there's so little out there that, um, you know, it, 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 it squeezes those, vo- the volume even more, compression on margins. I mean, it's, it's not good for anybody. It's really tough, you know, and especially if, if you're an LO and let's say you've been working in the industry for a year or two, you almost certainly do not have enough uh, of a Rolodex to to be self-supportive with a purchase market, you know, and, and even if you do know a few good realtors and they're, they're you know, going to work with you on some deals, those realtors do not have enough homes. Like, I don't know any real estate agent in America who's like, yep, I've got just like, I'm, I'm just absolutely loaded with inventory. My clients are busy. They're moving around. You know, it doesn't mean that they're not as busy as they were, um, you know, but, but operating in different ways, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be getting more business out of it. So um, it's, it's a really, really tough market. And, and that means that LOs in particular have to get really creative. And so uh, one of our reporters, Maria Volkova uh, has, has done a really interesting, really fun report on, on some of the strategies and some of the methods that LOs are, are employing to try to drum up purchase business, you know, try to try to get their name out there, try to get their face out there. Uh, in, in some cases, they're advertising in, in kind of specific, uh, you know, immigrant rich neighborhoods in which they have a connection. So uh, Maria spoke with a guy uh, who's originally from the Soviet Union, and uh, he goes to Eastern European stores around Maryland. You know, he's got business cards and flyers right by the checkout area. And so when a customer is coming through with caviar, pumpernickel bread, or, you know, Ukrainian bacon, stuff like that, they see his name, they see his face. And, um, and so he gets calls and, and even realtors, you know, like realtors shop at these stores too. So, so he's, he's using kind of that method to try to drum a purchase business. And in other cases, you know, people are leaning on um, what, what they have, this is not my word for it. There were fixers in local communities uh, to connect them with prospective borrowers. So Maria spoke with a guy who was an LO at Fairway, and uh, and he has this guy who's a fixer in uh, the uh, Indian American community. Uh, you know, and, and this guy he speaks Hindi and Urdu, and he knows that this fixer will will send him business, and so that's. You know, in, in a lot of cases, if you're only doing X amount of loans a year, that could be a make or break. You know, there's just not a lot of 
properties out there for purchase. And so, you know, and, and of course, in this case, it, it also means that there are some people who will uh, do what we described previous, which is, you know, pull cash out of their home and, and maybe use it for a college fund or, you know, get a new kitchen, whatever. So he has some refi opportunities there as well. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, purchase is the name of the game. And, uh, and, and you got to be creative, you got to be scrappy. And if you don't have Rolodex to do it, I, I think a lot of lenders, originators are going to look at their roster and say, we're spending a lot of money on people that aren't producing much. Do we need all these LOs? You know, should we renegotiate a lot of these agreements? And, um, and so that, that's going to continue to be a trend as well. You know, we talk about the cyclicality of our industry, but you couldn't have a better, you know, picture of that than over the last few years where 2020, 2021, they couldn't add LOs fast enough. And then now, you know, again, we're going to, as you said, you're going to have to shed them. And especially if people are new to the business, if all they did was refis, they're, they're not very in a very good position as far as uh, individual LOs to really know how to do that purchase uh, application, get, get those people through the process. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really tough if you were an LO at like a better.com and you make the Scotsman Guide as one of the top LOs in America by volume. And then you look at the numbers and you go, oh, wow, it, literally every single loan that they did was was a refi you know, through a computer in, in uh, presumably an office in New York. Uh, I don't know how that translates to you, you know, transitioning to another company in a completely different market environment. You know, maybe maybe some of the skills are translatable. Maybe somebody says you're you're good at this and we'll take a chance on you. But but those are almost different jobs. And so, you know, there are a lot of companies that have done, you know, big consumer direct operations. And if you're an LO there, you are probably in you're probably either looking for the exits, uh, finding something new, or they're looking for you to be going through the exits. So it's it's uh, it's going to be really really tough for a lot of them, but you know I, I think if you've been an originator in this game for you know, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, like, and you don't have the contacts, you don't have uh, you know the the ability to withstand a downturn. Um, I, I mean, it's a cyclical business, as you said, Sarah. So you should you should remember you know what happened in 2017, 2018 and be able to adapt. But yeah, there's going to be a thinning of the herd for sure. You know, obviously, it's not just on the mortgage side that uh, people are feeling the pain. When you think about the realty side, you know, huge changes for them. That low inventory, the the competitive bidding situation means that you know a lot of realtors are working really hard, not not getting anything for it. I know we did a, a story a couple of weeks ago on on all the new realtors or real estate agents, I should say, coming into the space and how they're faring in such a competitive market. More than ever, there are more real estate agents than ever. And if it's, it's sort of the classic second career, right? Like it's, it's, I think a lot of people just think, well, I'm personable, you know, I love homes. I love interior design. I can do it. And, and then they really do try to do it. And unless they have, you know, a a very supportive family or they've built up a a nest egg or they have a cushion, uh, this is a really, really tough industry to break into. I think in general, like it's a tough industry to break into. It, it can be very forgiving in some ways, but it, it really comes down to one, a bit of luck, right? You got to find the right brokerage too. Uh, you need in a lot of cases to find a mentor who can kind of work with you through situations. You know, if, if I'm a consumer, I'm selling my house, like would I take the chance on someone who's never done this before and potentially leave money on the table or get into some sort of legal issue, God forbid, if something happens, probably not. You know, I just wouldn't do that, especially given how high the stakes are. And so, 
yeah, I, I just, I don't know how this is going to work for the real estate agents either. Again, I, I think we go back to the same, same line, which is if you've been doing this for a while, you have good sources, you have good contacts, you know how to get business. You don't have to just, you know, rely on leads from Zillow or, you know, from, from wherever. Um, I think you'll probably do okay. But if you're buying just ads on Zillow and hoping that an appearance at, you know, the uh, the local Little League game is, is going to get you there. Like, it might not. It might not be good enough. So, tough times for that. Really interesting. You know, we've had a lot of uh, coverage, too. So, uh, senior real estate reporter Matt Blake has done a fantastic job looking at different kinds of brokerage models and saying, you know, what, what works best and what works best right now. So, in, in one of his latest, he talks about Redfin, talking about their business model. Uh, walk us through that a little bit. Fascinating. Redfin is, is, I think, one of the more interesting companies out there that doesn't really quite get um, the, the publicity or the attention from the media or others, maybe in real estate, uh, that perhaps it deserves. You know, what, what they're doing is legitimately interesting and novel. They are, to my knowledge, the only large-scale real estate brokerage that hires agents. I don't mean, you know, they are an agent uh, but they're actually a 1099 and they make their own decisions and they're connected to the brokerage, you know, for, for various services and products, you know, and, and there's a fee structure, but, but they're not employees. And so you can't directly tell them what to do. You can't, um, you can't kind of manage them in that respect. Uh, so what they do is, is totally different. You know, they have thousands of agents across the country and they are uh, also, the most productive agents in the country on top of that. So the average agent's going to do like a deal, generally a deal a month, right? I mean, there are instances in which you have a hot streak and, and maybe you, you string a few together, but um, I don't know of any brokerage that can claim uh, as many deals per agent as Redfin. And they have a lot of agents and they're in a lot of markets across the country. And what they do is similar to Zillow, they have a lead generating machine and they're able to provide, in some cases, very high quality leads to their agents who, you know, they work on salary, right? They're not taking uh, X percent of 6% or 5%, whatever kind of the standard split is in the local neighborhood. And um, it allows Redfin to have a little bit more control over um, their business operations. They um, make money. They are profitable from their brokerage arm. Let's be clear about that. Not every brokerage can say that. We we just finished up the Compass earnings. Compass lost like gazillion dollars last year, as they always seem to do. They're always losing money, even though they talk a lot about, you know, just turning the corner and being profitable. The reality is Compass is not profitable. They're not close to being profitable. But Redfin, their brokerage operations, they are. They do make money on it. But what I think makes Redfin interesting as a model is also telling nobody else has tried this. Nobody is trying to do this at scale like this. And there are a few reasons for it. Um, one, I think part of it is just kind of a lack of comfort with the idea. You know, brokerage uh, has been sort of in this in this uh, this model of uh, contractors essentially for 40-something years now. It is – you'd have to go back to the 1970s to find a time in which it was normal for real estate agents to be – salaried and to have, uh, you know, health insurance and, uh, you know, 
back in the day, uh, Remax is the one that had uh, a different model and and became the franchise king. And, and then so everyone kind of followed suit. And again, we're looking at like 40-something years ago. And so what's interesting is from the people that Matt spoke to, a lot of current agents at Redfin and a lot of former agents is is what, what they say is that it's it's a really good training camp. You get to learn the ropes of being an agent. You get to learn your local market. You get to make valuable connections with potential clients and other real estate agents. And, you know, you just kind of learn how it works. And you do that for a few years. And for the most part, people leave. Uh, Redfin has a very high attrition rate. You know, the industry averages, depending on the type of brokerage, anywhere between half and like one fourth as, as high in attrition. So they lose a ton of agents. And if you're a good agent, you're at Redfin, you, you have a ceiling to what you can make. It is capped because it's a salary structure, right? And, and maybe you get a little bit here and there in terms of bonuses, but you're not getting that 3%, you know, selling this home or being the buy side agent on that home. And, you know, if, if it's a $5 million home, like you're not getting 3% of that. Let me tell you, um, it's not happening. And so a lot of agents look at their paycheck and they think I'm doing okay. Like, let, let's also be clear, like Redfin agents are not on the poverty line. They are doing fine. You know, the average agent is making uh, a very good living, but they are not making a great living. Like someone at Sotheby's who was able to do 10 deals that year, 12 deals that year, you know, you assume that they're in a luxury market and they're able to to, to get, let's say, two and a half, three percent 3% per. They can do a really, really, really nice, uh, you know, they'll have a really nice year that year if they're able to do that. Um, Redfin is capped. And so... It's, it's a tough model. Um, it also, because of it, it opens Redfin up to kind of fair housing claims, which is ironic because, you know, because of their model that their their agents are not incentivized to chase the highest price listings and homes. And, and you know, they don't have to just operate in, in like a, a luxury or a super luxury uh, tier. You know, they're incentivized to just do volume and to do deals where they find deals. Um but that doesn't mean that Redfin agents are necessarily in like, you know, the the poorest neighborhoods in the country. And because they're employees, Redfin is responsible for their conduct. And so there there is a, a large case that that is probably going to be settled in the next month or two in which Redfin is is, you know, essentially accused of um you know, not not really uh doing what they're supposed to be doing uh, in, in terms of, you know, doing business in communities with, with uh, you know, poor people or uh, communities of color. And so, so that lawsuit is, is probably going to result in changes to how Redfin is able to uh, distribute leads and um, how they do business. We don't know what this is going to look like, um, but it's ironic because, again, like I said, you know, Redfin agents are, are less incentivized to avoid areas uh, in which they have um, theoretically less money, right? But because they are employees, Redfin has a target, and you know these these issues are are much bigger than Redfin. You know, you look at a luxury brokerage, you don't see them even attempting to do business in poorer neighborhoods and the brokerage is is able to say 
Well, they're not our employees. We don't tell agents where to find their business, where to do their deals. We provide them the tools. We provide them the support. You know, we do have programs in place to promote, you know, uh, home buying and, and uh, you know, real estate services and in poor and minority neighborhoods. But at the end of the day, it is up to the agent to make their business their business. So, yeah, I mean, Redfin is, is a totally fascinating uh, company and you know they do a little bit of eye buying as well they do uh, a, a lot of different stuff and it's uh it's one to keep an eye on and I think their earnings are today so uh, we're gonna be taking a look and seeing you know how they're doing so interesting it's such a catch-22 to your point it's like here they're trying to solve some of this for the agents right and by doing that they put themselves in a riskier position from a Fair Housing Act or, or many of the things that come along with actually having employees as opposed to contractors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, Redfin already has a tough time keeping agents. So um, to, to make it even more difficult, you know, would, would be, uh, I, I see it as a pretty significant hurdle for them if they do want to uh, really go beyond uh, where they are currently. And, and it's funny because it's, it's one of those rare companies where they're very tech focused, right? They have uh, tech bonafides, you know, their, their platform is pretty strong and, and yet they're actually not at all a disruptor, right? Because as I said earlier, like literally nobody has adopted this model. Like no one is trying to do what Redfin is doing. You know, they do a tiny bit of eye buying, which even now, uh, after Zillow's uh, eye buying implosion is not all that novel. Uh, and so if you think of them as a brokerage, what they do is, is legit and they do make money from it. And, um, they do have a lot of agents, but they're not actually disruptive. So I, I would love to see another another brokerage try this uh, or even do some sort of a hybrid. You know, all the time you hear about agents who are like, oh, I don't have health insurance. Like, you know, there are there are issues with being a, a contractor, a 1099 who works in real estate. And one of those is you just don't get the benefits um, that you do from being an employee of a company. So. And listeners can find that um, story. It's called Inside Redfin's Unique, Brave, and Vulnerable Business Model, which I feel like is a great headline because it really does sum up what you've just said is like, you know, they're doing something different. They're making money, which is interesting, but they've definitely got their challenges as well. So I thought it was a great story by Matt. Definitely worth a read. Yeah. And and just one more line about this. Uh, Matt quotes uh, an agent uh, and um, she, she says to him, when I closed a $1.9 million property with Redfin, my bonus was $8,000. I would have gotten about $55,000 in commission at a typical brokerage. And so, you know, Redfin brings in people from outside the industry and they train them to be agents. And then once they do that, you know, and then the agents are are resourced enough and knowledgeable enough, they often look for the exits. So um, we're, we're going to be paying close attention today and, and Matt's going to be covering the Redfin earnings report uh, as, as to how they're looking in terms of attrition, because, you know, the average brokerage is like 20, 22% attrition and Redfin for new agents uh, earlier this year, or last year, rather, uh, they had an attrition rate of 53%. So, I mean, the pretty are- significant there. Yeah. You know, tell us, um, talking about the brokerage angles and that you're covering, tell us a little bit about the Keller Williams and EXP saga that we've been seeing unfold over the last couple of weeks. So yeah, this is um, this is a pretty interesting one. It's it's a bit of a saga. I don't know if we have 
Um, do, do you have four hours to talk about this one, Sarah? I, I don't. But, <laughs> Maybe um, not four hours. So give us the, uh, the condensed the version notes. of the saga. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so there is this this intriguing, maybe unprecedented courtroom battle um, over executives that is brewing uh, between Keller Williams and EXP. And um, so far, Keller Williams is, is uh, in terms of how the court per- is, is playing out, is uh, is doing fairly well. Um, but, but maybe we should rewind a little bit and I can kind of uh, sum up very briefly what, what led to all of this. So, you know, we, we have reporters and editors who talk to real estate agents and brokerage executives every day. And it is no secret in the industry that there is quite a bit of animus between uh, executives at Keller Williams and at EXP. And it depends on who you ask, but a lot of a lot of people who are sympathetic to Keller Williams believe that EXP is is just kind of ripping them off by taking all their agents. And um, and so you know Keller Williams, a proud company, you know, run by or formerly run by Gary Keller, a legend in the industry. Um, he, according to our sources, has been pretty upset about all the agents leaving, and and for a while it was just you know agents or agent teams that would jump from Keller Williams to EXP. And now what we're seeing spill out is the actual executive level. And, and so there is a case that is now playing out in a, a state court in Texas where Keller Williams is based. And it really revolves around uh, Mark Willis, who is the former CEO of Keller Williams. And he's trying to join EXP in an executive role. And he is at present not able to join EXP. And so the companies are going back and forth about why he is not permitted to join. And um, if you look at the court filing, it'll tell you that because Willis uh, still has ownership stakes in, in a, a few Keller Williams franchises that he you know, would be receiving uh, sensitive information that could uh, potentially change how uh, you know he interacts with with uh, EXP or his franchise, right? And so, so on those grounds, it is it is a case that you know looks looks pretty solid for Keller Williams. On the other hand, you know he has not been the executive of Keller Williams since 2016, and um, and if if you look at the larger picture here, Keller Williams is also doing something very similar to what EXP is doing, you know, and trying to get an executive, someone who has a lot of knowledge of the operations of the brokerage and, and put them in a leading role at, at, at their respective company. And so um, Stacey Onan, who's a former president of operations at EXP, uh, recently joined Keller Williams as the new director of growth operations. And, and so, you know, as soon as I came out, uh, Glenn Sanford, who's the head of EXP and, and also a former protege of Gary Keller. So maybe it's personal. He, he sent out this very cryptic uh, tweet, basically denouncing uh, Keller Williams' tactics. And then he comes out and he says, uh, quote, I am a strong proponent for agent and leadership mobility in the real estate industry. We are interested in engaging with Mark Willis because of his management experience and demonstrated leadership in the industry. EXP Realty has intervened in the lawsuit to protect its right to hire qualified real estate professionals and has no interest in any competitor's confidential information. So uh, Mark Willis declined to speak to us, of course. Carol Williams didn't 
didn't want to speak to us and said that they don't uh, comment on pending litigation. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, this this feud is is now out in the open, and um, it's the first time that it's not over an agent or agent teams, but the the C suite at these respective firms. And yeah, you know, no one's ever seen anything like this in in real estate in the last thirty five forty years. So. Um, yeah, get your popcorn, uh, sit down a little while, and it, it's, it's going to be a wild ride, I think. It is a wild ride. I mean, right now we have, it, it's such an interesting time to be anywhere in this industry, whether it's mortgage or servicing or real estate. Um, I, I really feel like our reporters are doing a great job. Your reporters are doing a great job. So, and I love talking to you on Fridays to do a wrap up of what's going on this week. So um, thanks for joining us today and looking forward to next week. And who knows what we'll be talking about. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Looking for more insight into what will happen in 2022? Or maybe you need more information on what in the world is happening with the federal regulators. Or you could just be looking for information on how to stay competitive as the industry shifts to a purchase-focused market. Our HW Plus Premium Membership comes with all of this insight and more. With your HW Plus Membership, you'll get at least five HW Plus articles a week that dive deeper into the daily news to help you confidently make business decisions. To join, go to housingwarrant.com forward slash membership. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.